Welcome to Thriller Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Bitcoin. play here let's hear because i really don't know any of this stuff and i know you're right. go- i know you're going to these places so i would want your opinion on this what are we looking at right there ben okay so this is malay in a crowd of uh, what i assume are supporters argentinians and he this is actually back in november when the runoff election occurred at which he was ultimately victorious so it's just showing the support the people have for him uh in this place where he's voting Dude, he looks like a rock star, man. He has a rock star aesthetic. He's kind of a, he's kind of a character. I, uh, I appreciate that about him. <laughs> Look at him. He's getting, he's like getting the people going and stuff. That's uh, yeah. He has a, a quote that I really like uh, on the political front, which he says, I didn't come to lead sheep, but to wake lions. Whoa. Yeah, so he has a poetic sense as wow. well. So he's a poet. Mm-hmm. Love it. So, so what happened? I know, I know he was, was he just, did he just come out of nowhere? Like where, how did he win this thing? He was a local leader, I think in Buenos Aires. He was uh, one of some kind of official there. Um, He also had a history in public broadcast and kind of a commentator on politics from an economic perspective. Uh And I think that's one of the places he cultivated his, his aesthetic in terms of how he communicates and how he gets attention. And I think that's, that's something to uh, draw a lesson from, which is that you need a place to, to uh, hone your message, to find your audience, and then to develop your, your character to, to have this kind of broader um, presence. So here's, this is one interview that he's done here. And, um... Porque esto es interesante. El socialismo es siempre y en todo lugar un fenómeno violento Asesino y empobrecedor. Is he so? Is he trying to say that he's against socialism? Is that is that what he's running with, and that's why a lot of Bitcoiners are kind of open to hearing yeah. him speak? I guess. Well, his um, his economic background is he's an avowed anarcho-capitalist, and he's um, read thoroughly read the Austrian economists and cites them often in terms of his his political argumentation. And uh, I think with respect to socialism, he, so he has a particular way of vilifying it. And I think this is basically applying the populist lens. And part of populism is about identifying, you have to have some enemy that you're going up against. You're like, oh, we have to take down the swamp or whatever else. Yeah. And I think having like, you can galvanize the public with this kind of enemy, right? Like, and, right. and, and Argentina, I believe, needs this because they have such a 
kind of deep culture and history of, um, you know, uh, government intervention in the economy and they suffer for it. Do, do you think, do you think it'll be a similar, I mean, obviously El Salvador is completely different, but do you think it'll be a similar path? Maybe they won't adopt Bitcoin right away, but do you think they'll, they'll see the light or, or does, has he talked about any of that kind of stuff yet? Sure. So their, I mean, their chief problem has been inflation. They have about 150% inflation in the past year and they've, the, uh, the peso has declined from parity with the dollar some uh, 10 years ago or something like that to the current exchange rate is around a thousand to one. So that you can think about, you know, how, how thoroughly you have to inflate your currency and how much you have to deprive from the people to re- produce that result. Mm-hmm. Basically, they run a, the government runs as a European social democracy where, except that they don't have the industry and the, and the capital base to generate the taxes that fund the programs that they want to have. So instead they print the money. Yeah. So, the, so we saw how fast El Salvador was able to adopt Bitcoin and really inject it into the, right. yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So this is another element of where um, Malay uses this vilification. He vilifies the the central bank. He, uh, there, there was one scene where he like had a pinata uh, representing the central bank for his birthday that he smashed with a, with a cane. Yeah. And so this is like basically translating, you know, like surfacing the public's anger about the financial situation and presenting it and identifying the, uh, like the cause and the target of it. And he's avowed to, you know, to eliminate the central bank. And that would mean when I think when he talks more uh, extensively about this, he basically says that he wants a competitive market for currency where, you know, the dollar will be one competitor, but so will Bitcoin. And so will these other kind of alternatives. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and he takes office in uh, January or did he, cause he, he already, t- he took office oh, he did? On, the, on the 10th of December, I believe. Has he done anything uh, interesting? Yeah. So his first act was to, reduce the number of uh, ministers by um, I think it was down to nine from like 26. So wow. he just kind of eliminated some departments. I don't know. I, I don't know Argentinian politics well enough to know exactly the nuts and bolts and like significance of these actions. I also don't know what um, I think there's much more that they'll, that they're planning to do. One of the, the recent subjects is that um, there's an expectation of a public campaign of protesting or like blocking traffic. And so they've been communicating that they're not going to tolerate um, blocking uh-huh. traffic. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, they tried doing that here in in, uh, in Austin and mm-hmm. uh, during the whole riots and stuff. And that quickly ended really quickly when the rubber bullets came out. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting subject. Um, <laughs> It gets, I mean, uh, I don't mean to laugh if anybody got hurt or anything, but it's it's weird how like um, you know because people also you I mean you can have your protests and everything like that, but some people have to go to work, you know. Some people have to live their life; they they don't have the luxury of of uh, you know rioting. To- totally, like this came up on the uh, libertarian subreddit, you know, where people thinking like, okay, how how do we feel about this? Raising that question, and it's just this, right? Like you can't as a according to the libertarian perspective, you can't use your freedom to impinge on other people's freedom. And if you're blocking traffic, you're basically like holding them hostage. And that's, uh, 
that's an aggressive act. It's a, it's not a, you know, if somebody did that as an individual to another individual in a, in a past somewhere, you'd be justified in, in defending yourself against them. And so that's, uh, yeah, I think it, it gets really interesting because like justification isn't necessarily truth, right? Like I think one of the biggest problems that we have in the world right now is everybody's trying to maneuver their, their truth in whatever light that they want. And there's actual truth. And then there's, you know, actual, there's, there's things that people say are true, but are they actually true? Yeah, this is a, I mean, that's a very, very deep and difficult question. <laughs> yeah, it's very nuanced and we don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but. Um, I tend to look from a moral perspective or political philosophical perspective, I tend to look to Locke and, and people who are kind of in his uh, line of thought. And um, he would say, so the, the job of the political philosopher is to articulate a system that people agree with and that produces good results in the public. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Locke has a long history of that, you know, being one of the foundational thinkers of the American Republic. Yeah. Um, let's jump into, uh, let's jump into, do you want to talk about the Bitcoin plus plus stuff that you'll be doing there? Uh, well, it's, um, that's right. So there's uh, Lisa's putting on a conference. I'm looking forward to being there and participating and, and giving a talk. I'm planning to speak about uh, NFC communications cool. with respect to Bitcoin payments. Cool. Yeah, definitely get your tickets. If you haven't got your tickets yet, it should be an awesome time. Bitcoin plus plus. Yeah, Buenos Aires is a lovely city. And yeah, what, what, are you, what, are you, what are you planning on doing there when you get there? Well, I think to you have to appreciate, I think it's a particularly good time to visit because of the changes that are occurring that are very interesting. And also because the currency is doing so poorly, has been doing so poorly for so long, they, the country is in a difficult spot financially, right? Like that the reason Malay was, one of the reasons Malay was elected is that more and more of the population is becoming impoverished because of the central bank policies and whatnot. And so when you go there and it's very inexpensive, uh, basically everything's inexpensive and and you're like, you could, some people might feel um, self-conscious about participating in that. But one of the reasons it's inexpensive is that they desperately need dollars. They need external currency to support their international trade, which is why it's, you know, desirable. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely recommend checking it out. We'll put, we'll put links in the show notes and um, yeah, get your tickets. Cause um, yeah, it sounds like a good time, dude. And then if you're going to be talking, I know you, didn't you do like an NFC lightning That's hackathon right. we did, here? We did hackathon indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And some cool stuff came out of there, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. We, um, there was one uh, project around basically doing uh, work t like timekeeping, like oh, clocking yeah, in and that kind that. of thing. Yeah. That was cool. Um, yeah. So definitely check out that. Uh, and uh, yeah, I can't, I can't wait to see all the footage from them. That's going to be a good time. So the other thing I wanted to talk on before we get into the developer stuff, because dude, you've been doing a lot of work here, man, since you've, uh, since you've come to this place called Austin. Um, so tell me about ACC Austin. What, what's, uh, what have you been yeah. doing on the ground? Cause I don't think, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you like to shine a light on the stuff that you do, but dude, you're, you're doing it, man. Thank you, by the way. All right. Yeah. Um, so, um, ACC is the American Conservation Coalition. It's a uh -huh. it's an environmental advocacy organization that is pro tech and pro people. So one one of the things I the reason I came to the ACC is that 
the, I was, you know, I, I was raised uh, an environmentalist. So my parents, like my father's, uh, won a wife, won a lifetime achievement award from Keep Flower Mound Beautiful, which is a, you know, the local, you know, cleanup organization. Cool. And uh, the, you know, my parents have always composted and things like that. And in recent times, I was looking out over the, you know, the online and in other places, I was seeing these very negative um, arguments around environmentalism. People saying, don't have children because, uh, you know, they're bad for the environment. And then I ask, like, who are we saving the environment for if not our children, right? It's right. Yeah. kind of absurd. Um, and I think basically the other thing that's happening is some groups are using environmentalism as cover for their, as a justification for their ideology, which is, you know, in this case, uh, it's like, uh, well, for example, you have people who have kind of, they're like crypto communists and they're saying, well, because of environmentalism, we have to implement all these government policies that basically establish communism. And like, that's their, this is like the, the sunshine movement, I think it's called, or sunrise movement. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the, um, so with all these, I, I looked around and I didn't really see good arguments being made. And so I wanted to support this kind of alternative that, that represents the future that I believe in, which is a future of, um, a future of abundance, a future of transcendent humanity, where we're building, we're using technology to build a society that's very, um, rich and, and supportive of everyone, but, uh, and, you know, con continuing to elaborate on its own possibility and complexity. Yeah. So let's, let's dive into that. Like how, how does that actually look like, uh, just from like grassroots level? Like what, what do I need to do or what do people uh, that are listening to this in and around Austin, or even maybe they're in, in their own little cities or towns, like how, how do we move towards this kind of way? And like, what's the first step and how does that process look like from step one? Yeah. So first you need to kind of the map to say like, where do we need to go in order to achieve the outcomes that we desire? And then there's, and then once you have that goal in mind, then you can kind of devise a, pol a practice to, to move in that direction. And so in this case, what we advocate for it, uh, the American Conservation Coalition, is things like basically abundant energy, abundant clean energy through nuclear power. Nuclear power is a, it's a wonderful resource that can, it has, uh, it's extremely uh, abundant in its, in its power supply. And it's, and there's um, basically a generational gap in the understanding of what, how, what nuclear is, because we've had, as with all technologies, the initial designs are poorly devised, have faults and you experience issues with those faults. Mm -hmm. And as the, as you iterate on the technology, you, you develop them up to a point where they're basically flawless. And in this case, we have this, these next generation reactors, which are, um, designed in such a way that they cannot have these kind of negative outcomes that have, you know, could occur in the past with meltdown and things like that. So, you know, and we also have very good reasons for pursuing that, right? We have, you can just look at the example of France versus Germany. So France has been powered by uh, nuclear power throughout its history, basically since it's been possible. And Germany recently just de decommissioned its remaining nuclear power. Really? Yep. Wild. Because of the Green Party in, in oh. Germany, basically the the sort of this, it's an, another example of one of these kind of negative uh, negative environmental arguments. 
right, where it's counterproductive because in this case, they decommissioned the nuclear power and they replaced that with coal and coal outputs out a lot of radioactive results in its, as a byproduct of its burning. And it also, um, you know, it's a lot of particulates that causes um, various kind of issues like stroke and whatnot. So, so once you get the energy, it sounds like once you get the energy in place here in your own community and stuff like that, then, oh, yeah. yeah. So, oh, okay, so that, that's one example. Abundant energy and, um, you know, there are many different kinds of ways of supplying energy. What, the biggest one that's kind of missing, the sort of least, the, the underutilized resource, I think, is nuclear power. And, and so that's, that's why we advocate on that is to kind of build the political will to change the, the federal policies to, to make that more possible. Another area would be housing abundance, right? So if, um, if housing isn't abundant, then cost of living is high and people have to sprawl out, right? Because they have to build in, in these like far flung places. Yeah. Whereas if we build, we do a lot of infill development, there's plenty of housing, housing costs are low. Um, so living is relatively easy. And it also, people don't produce a lot of um, carbon whatnot through their transportation. And would, would this community, would they be all set up in a sort of like a shared grid or of a sort? Ideally, they would want to sustain their own energy, right? Not, not to rely off of, of others or, or it doesn't matter? No, it do, I, I wouldn't say it matters. I think the, um, like it depends on whatever the context is in which the housing is built. So like in the, in the city we have, um, I mean, I guess pretty much everywhere we have grid connectivity. If you want to have independence, and then you can supplement that with your own supply and then you'll have, then you have optionality around, around that, but it's not required. Okay. Interesting. And so, uh, when you had this, this lady here, I guess, Nicole Nosek, mm -hmm. what was, um, what was this about? Yeah, she was, she was arguing, uh, pre presenting, um, the environmental argument for YIMBY policies and, uh, just, to explain the term YIMBY stands for yes in my backyard and it's a uh, contra the not in my backyard uh, housing the people who will generally argue for like neighborhood preservation and you know yes you should build housing but not here uh, these these people exist they exist in Austin they uh, in this case uh, she was she was uh, making this environmental argument in support of a policy that the city council has had been uh, considering. Yeah, so explain this a little more flushed out. So she just wants to move, reduce carbon emissions is build more homes closer to job centers. Yeah, so I guess right. closer to downtown, I guess. So, where is she? so the Austin City Council was considering something called the, the Home Act, uh -huh. which was about make, giving, the, giving property owners the ability by right to build up to three units on their single family zone property. Okay. And so this, um, this, the idea here is to open a pathway for more basically townhome developments. Like the, you can imagine them as like the, the skinny tall houses, you know, where you have like a row house. And so this would create more housing. New so, town, so new townhouses, it looks like a graphic, new townhouses less than other new single family homes in Houston. So by making this possible, by allowing property owners to do this, then anyone who's you know, looking to redevelop their property has the, has an option of redeveloping it in a different way. Gotcha. So instead of building a single large home, which would be a mansion in these like highly valued areas, 
they they can build four or three oh, gotcha. smaller like could be normal sized homes, but set up as townhomes so that there's more optionality. And the point is to accommodate more people and also to make housing more in these, these desirable areas, more accessible to kind of middle income people who are right. young professionals and whatnot. Then you can have young families living in basically starter homes in desirable areas. And that, you know, that's good for the young families and it's good for the community as well, I believe. Yeah. And, and you also, I feel like I see that in Dallas, they have those like very thin um, homes. I want to say I've seen them in Dallas. Yeah. Austin used to have them significantly and they uh, disallowed them in a policy change in like 1984. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. I know they have, um, gosh, I don't go up there very often anymore, but I used to a lot um, where the old airports at, um, I can't think of the name. Love Field. Yeah. So they, they redeveloped that whole area. Um, and I think instead of doing what you're talking about, they did the complete opposite. And I haven't been over there in a while. I mostly stay central now. But um, yeah, and so like, and I think they actually, if I remember correctly, they they set aside some of these properties for um, low-income wage people to, to apply and all that kind of stuff. Uh, fascinating. But yeah, it, like it, would, it would make much more sense to have... Um, for these or something yeah, like that. So setting aside, doing like low income units for, for people works if you're doing a larger development, like you're building a whole apartment building, then mm -hmm. you can do a relatively small, some percentage of them. Yeah. But if you're, if you're redeveloping a single family lot, you're not building so many units that you can take a significant reduction in the income from any given right. unit to, without imperiling right. the whole project. And so this is, so I like this approach, which is basically there's no money changing hands. It's just the government letting people do exactly. what they want to do. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it costs nothing and, uh, and it gives more you know opportunity for people. Yeah. I, I, there was a, I used to live on the East side. So it, as you know, a lot of new houses are going up over there, but, um, there was a, one of our neighbors was trying to just build like a man cave in his, in his uh -huh. backyard. And like within, I want to say like within the first week of him, like, you know, putting up the, the, the foundation and all that stuff, he got like ticketed. It was like, no, you can't do it. Yeah. Well, cause, that, cause yeah, like you can't do it. And then uh -huh. he was just doing it on the weekends yeah. at night, you know, away from, and then sure enough, like within, and then he got fined and there was a whole thing. I, I don't Same. remember what happened, but it, yeah, it goes to what you were talking about. Like you couldn't just. Yeah. So Nicole was, was particularly presenting some evidence that, this, these kind of policies, this policy in the Home Act um, would improve the environmental outcomes. And Sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, the, the main argument is that certainly there, there are a couple of benefits. Like one is that when you build, like in an apartment building, when you have shared walls and things like that, you can have more efficient heating and cooling. And that's, that's significant in Texas and, and elsewhere. But another big part, maybe the biggest part, is the transportation consequence. So if you can have a shorter commute, you might be able to ride a bike. You might be able to take a bus. Um, you have, uh, certainly you're sitting less in traffic and that that's going to be the major component of the savings. Yeah, totally. Um, and you can walk to your local neighborhood amenities yeah. and, and there's a, uh, you know, a lot to, to celebrate about that. Yeah. Cause even, even now, like that same side of town, like it, it's all just Airbnbs and stuff like that. And it's like, 
you know? So I, I know you have the, the Protopia kind of, uh, is, is it a meetup Ben or, or like the Protopia stuff that you do? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you talk about the, um, the article in Bitcoin magazine. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's pull that up. What is it? It's in the broke issue. This one. Okay. Yeah. So tell me about the Protopia. Did you write this or where, where, uh, where is it at? Maybe you can tell me about it. I don't think they have it online. Do I, they? I think it, well, I have found, found it online. There was a, I think we actually have this issue somewhere. I just don't know where it's placed at. Oh, right there. Protopia by Ben Woosley. I found it. Um, awesome. So as long as I've known you, you've always talked about this stuff, but um, what can you tell me about it? Sure. So again, it's kind of getting out of this idea of we need, um, we need maps to, to orient ourselves in space and time and, and among ideas and uh, to help us identify the, the path forward. And so I look for ideas that are helpful in that, in that respect. Mm -hmm. And this one, Rotopia was, is a term coined by Kevin Kelly. I first heard about it from a conversation between Grimes and Lex Friedman. Okay. And it's the idea that whereas utopia is a, is a perfect ideal that as which is defined as not capable of existing, right? Like the Greek uh, mm -hmm. etymology is the not place. Yeah. And protopia is the idea that from our status quo through incremental improvement, we can arrive at a, at a, eventually transcend an outcome. And in, in, in effect, like our current situation in many ways is transcendent compared to what we know from history. Right. And so the, the, the what it calls attention to is that our incremental efforts are the path to this better outcome. Yeah. That's something I can get behind, man. It's literally one foot in front of the other bed. It's that simple. I think, I think there's just a lot of people that overthink it. Uh, but once you start seeing like, you know, the glass around you that, that you can break through and it just gets addicting. Yeah. It's like starting an open source project or yeah. creating a community event or doing, yeah. you know, these other things, they all uh, contribute to the ecosystem. They develop into like a, you know, a, a, the future, the culture. of the future. Yeah. And it's usually, I mean, like what you're doing, it's just like one person, right? And then two, three becomes like 10 20, 50, a hundred, maybe it takes a few years, but that's how it starts, man. Yeah. Another, of my favorite, um, sort of guiding principles is the idea of uh, meta utopia. What's that? So this, this comes from Robert Nozick. He's a political philosopher in a book, yeah. uh, anarchy, you state anarchy, state utopia. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. And he, so as a philosopher, he looks at the question of, you know, what, what is a realizable vision of utopia? What is the sort of ideal outcome that we can strive for? And he says, well, everyone has different perspectives and preferences. And so you can't possibly have one utopia that everyone would be satisfied with. So instead he says, we need a, uh, a meta utopia, a utopia of utopias. And that's lots of different cultures, lots of different societies that like, if you're unsatisfied with all the options, you can create a new society 
and then invite everyone else to participate in it with you. Uh, and then they compete for the participation of people. And ultimately that arrives at you know, these kind of as close to ideal situations as possible. Is this the same kind of theory that uh, Balaji has about the network state stuff? It almost sounds similar <coughs> to, to a certain extent. Maybe, <coughs> maybe not the, um, you know, maybe not entirely, but. Yeah, it's very related, right? Like yeah. the network state is kind of a path to meta-utopia. Interesting. But if you squint, you know, we have like, it's a, it's a matter of degrees, right? We have kind of meta-utopia in a sense in sort of the, in like the competition between states or the competition between the cities, but it's an ideal. So we can strive towards it, drive towards it by sort of further devolving power, further differentiating different environments and creating subcultures and new places to give people more options that are, you know, within their, their purview. Yeah. And do you think, do you think, um, do you think, I mean, obviously I think Bitcoin fits in this system or state. Um, Definitely. I mean, yeah, like, yeah. Go for it. Go for like it. Currency is a thing that should operate across societies as well. I mean, it can be, you can't have currency that are specific to a given society, but really what currency allows for is, you know, one of the best roles of currency is trade across people who do not otherwise agree, right? You know, across, like between tribes and whatnot. So I think Bitcoin's very like kind of ties these things together. <coughs> yeah, that. Yeah, that makes a that makes a lot of sense. Um, is is there anybody outside of yourself that's doing this in other places around the world? I mean, I I, I know. You, well, you you can look at like the the charter cities movement. So this is a uh, Patrick Friedman and other people are involved in this. So this is a an effort to have national governments allocate a certain amount of space to a, to a city that is a new city and allow it to develop um, as, you know, under these rules as operated by basically a private institution. And uh, there are a few examples, I believe. So one, one is Prospera, I think it's in Honduras. Oh, interesting. And one of the ideas is, that by creating these these sort of free cities, you can create a context for industry that would might not be welcome in other places and or might not, you know, you know, like it would ruffle feathers. And uh, you know, who needs freedom is the people who are on the fringes and want to explore a new possibility, basically. So um, I think that's like one of the things you're you're seeing, or one of the things I've seen from uh, Prospera is um, sort of medical treatments that aim at either like both solving medical issues, but also enhancing the 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 body. Right. It looks like there's five of them. I don't know if this is the right site or not, but it looks like there's five of them. Check in the Africa. Latin America. And then in Latin America, there's one in, um, where are we at here? Honduras, yeah. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a nascent movement. Uh, I don't, uh, remains to be seen how these cities will develop and like what, 
what import they'll take. I think uh, personally, I'm uh, I'm more inclined to like I tend towards larger city myself, so I'm less likely to be a, a pioneer for one of these uh, charter cities. I'm more likely to embrace a place like Buenos Aires or Austin, and that's my my kind of style of life. Do you think it? Do you think it's possible? like for us here in Austin to actually do this from within this, the current system that we have, or do you think it's like, how, how hard would it be Ben to actually like, you know, try to get Austin to adopt Bitcoin on their balance sheet or even get a Bitcoin mayor or just move in the direction that we know as Bitcoiners is the correct path for society. Um, what, what do you think? Do you think that's possible in our lifetime, I know we're striving for it individually, but do you think it's possible? Yeah, I think it's totally possible. I think uh, I think it's even inevitable. Um, the, Why? Well, Why do you think it's inevitable? Well, I think it's pretty... One of the reasons you've seen uptake from politicians relative to Bitcoin is that politicians are looking to create a coalition of, of people who are that's able to, su- to succeed the election. And... Bitcoiners as single issue kind of people, they they can be they can be supported and brought in without alienating too many other folks out in the world. So, so I don't think basically it doesn't. It's not that difficult for a mayoral candidate to say. I support Bitcoin and then do some things in support of Bitcoin right. because you know not that many, it, it won't cause that many issues for them. The, um, but this is one of the reasons that the, I would say for, to, to protect this, the possibility of this kind of action, it's very important that we take these, environmental arguments and argue against them forcefully to kind of correct the the record. Yeah. Like uh, here I'm thinking of the, um, what was the video that? Which one? So there was one about um, the CO2 produced by a Bitcoin mining. Oh yeah, the right one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, I remember that one. That was so weird. I don't know if it'll come up or not, but yeah. That's right. Yeah. Pierre did great on that. Yeah. This is it right here. I think they, this is a response video that, uh, I'm sure everybody's seen this by now. We're here out in Rockdale, Texas. Uh, we've got lots of plants here. These plants are consuming CO2 and emitting oxygen, which is fantastic. (laughs) When we measure CO2 out here, we're in the green. Uh, there are very low levels of CO2. It's funny how like when parts per million outside people CO2. didn't understand Bitcoin Just humor. Fantastic like. reading. Uh, Rockdale has some of the freshest air I've ever breathed. So uh, this is a great way to establish a baseline. Um, let, we're going to go inside the mining facility and we're going to see how much is this number going to go up. Uh, if the Do you think Rockdale could be up, that place? Well, I, I mean, one of these, maybe not a charter city, but one of these, because isn't the mayor, like, he's a supporter of Bitcoin, isn't he? 
so I think it's important to say it's like not a singular place, right? It's a it's a proliferation of of environments, right? Like yeah. Rockdale has a certain uh, context and a certain industry, and it's going to be it's going to develop a community around that. I think there are others that so another possibility is to acquire some land in unincorporated territory out in the outskirts of Austin, and then to develop that into a town. And the benefit of that relative to Rockdale is it would be closer to the city. And so you'd have some those conveniences. I don't know actually how far Rockdale is. I think it's two, two hours or something away from Austin. Yeah, that's a good point. I think Sunset Valley did that, if I'm not mistaken. Let me see. Yeah, Sunset Valley. I think they did that here in Southwest Austin. I'm not sure how they actually did it. They used to live in Sunset Valley. So amazing little. Oh yeah, I guess they did, but I don't know the story how they did it, Ben. But well, basically, you you just acquire the land and articulate the principles of the of the place, and you b- build the infrastructure and you invite people to to live there with you, basically. And in this case, I think there's a lot of potential and we're seeing some examples in various places of um, people who are building basically car-free cities Okay. where you have, uh, so one example is a place called uh, cul-de-sac in Arizona, which is instead of building uh, apartments on top of uh, a, a parking garage, they built all their housing on top of, retail and no, mm-hmm. no uh, parking. And they have like a grocery store and, and various shops and bike uh, facilities and things like that. And in doing that, they create an environment that's more, that's walkable, that's has this kind of social element. And uh, anyway, the, the point there is that by developing your built environment in a different way, you can provide something distinct from the, the status quo that certain people will appreciate and and will derive derive certain benefits from that. And yes. I think there is there's a lot to be said for like a walkable uh, urban environment. Yeah, so it's interesting. I just pulled it up right now. So sunsetvalley.org is the website. But on September 13th, 1954, citizens in the area known as Sunset Valley voted to incorporate as a town. They elected Clinton Vilvin to serve as the first mayor of the area, which now measures a little over 681 acres. Today, we remain a relatively small town, but there certainly have been a lot of changes in growth. Uh, the beginning of the first water system to serve the area occurred, and they kind of go through the history of it. But mm-hmm. this is the only example I've ever seen happen here in, in Austin um, that I know of personally. Um, but when you started talking about this stuff, this really piqued my interest because I was like, yeah, we totally could do like a Citadel thing. Obviously, you wouldn't call it a Citadel or maybe we would, but it's uh, like in this in Sunset Valley for people who don't know the area is like really, really close. It's like it's like maybe like a 10 minute drive from downtown, I would say. Um, it's not that far. Yeah. I mean, it was, I'm sure the outskirts when yeah. at the time in the 50s when it was bought and when it was established. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Yeah, did you see what Elon is doing? He's planning uh, a new yeah, university in Austin. It's pretty exciting. What do you think about that? I think it's awesome. I, I'm I'm excited for all the projects that are developing in Austin. Like uh, the University of Austin, I think is another interesting project. And I think the idea of remaking education and making it more um, serve when, when you see 
a big storied institution failing so badly for so long right. going this like wrong direction i think you can uh, you have an opportunity there to create new institutions and so this is they're taking that cue and they're saying you know here's a here's an alternative and then you get to see you can evaluate the alternative once you create it i think that's it's much better to you know create than to i mean much more productive to create than to critique the status quo. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, th I thought it was really interesting. I think a lot of stuff that he's doing here around the area is uh, definitely benefiting us. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish his, I wish the backseat of t Teslas were a little bit more comfortable, but <laughs> other than that, uh, well, they don't sell they don't sell Teslas to the uh, backseat driver. Yeah, that's true. It's a really uncomfortable seat. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah. So the last thing I want to touch on is just all your work that you've done, man. And I know you're not for people at home. Ben is not the bragging type. Ben is so humble. I don't know how you stay so humble. Like, dude, it's incredible. So one, one day, I don't know when it was, maybe it was earlier this year. I, and I brought this up and I don't mean to embarrass you, but I was looking through this thing called developers of Bitcoin and then I dig, uh, this just, you know, it just happened across my desk and I was looking through it and I was like reading it, you know, I was like, uh, oh, and then lo and behold, there's this one page that says Bitcoin's most prolific contributors. And then they go into this, this by ranking Bitcoin's developers by total number of commits, some interesting observations arise. And then lo and behold, who do I see at number 32, Mr. Ben Woosley. Dude, what? <laughs> like, I didn't know this. What? Yeah. Like, look, dude. Okay, so let me just brag for you. 20, right. 2018, 69 commits. 2020, 37. 2021, 26. 2022, wait, 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 no, wait, 2020, 26, 2021, four, 2022, eight, for a total of 144, uh, and that 77% cumulative total. Crazy, man. Like what? <laughs> this whole yeah. time when I saw this, I was looking through it and I was like, Ben? And then I think I told you the next time I saw it, I was like, dude, did you know your names? And you're like, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing. It's like I, uh, I, well, okay, so I can just tell the story of how I got involved. Yeah. Like I was, um, like Bitcoin for me started, you know, even before Bitcoin, it started with, um, it really, maybe it started with reading uh, Milton Friedman's Free to Choose in high school or, um, you know, getting involved in the Ron Paul campaign for president in like 2004. Mm -hmm. um, so Ron Paul talked about inflation and the, the dangers or the basically the damage that the Federal Reserve does mm -hmm. to America um, forcefully. And he, he talked about how it feeds the war machine and how it does these other things and basically convinced me at that time that we need some alternative to the federal reserve mm -hmm. and, but there wasn't really, you know, Bitcoin didn't exist and the, but it was, it was enough to know that it was a problem. And then I got involved. I've been involved in the, um, the free state project for, for a good while. And I've been attending conferences there and they, um, that community is very interested in alternative currencies because for the same reason, they see the problem with the federal reserve they're looking to, um, you know, create some some alternative for themselves so they don't participate in that. 
And uh, so basically when I first heard of Bitcoin, I was in 2012 and I, I, um, I wanted to succeed, right? It was this fledgling project and was, um, you know, just an open source project. And I, you know, did some small things at that time. And the, it wasn't until later, I didn't really consider to work on Bitcoin though, until it was 2017. And what were you doing at that time? Were you just like, all throughout, I've been in my career, primarily I've been working in web development, Ruby on Rails. Okay. And so working on startups in or consulting in San Francisco at the time. Okay. And in 2017, I, I had left one company and I was planning to join another, which is a startup that my friend was starting. And I took a month off in between. And this was in the middle of the ICO bubble. So it was very... Oh, yeah very dynamic time, lots of new projects popping up and things like that. And I spent that month basically reading white papers and watching videos. And by the end of it, I was obsessed. And particularly I was, there was one video of, um, about the lightning network that was articulated by, um, Taj Durja and, or Dreja and, um, and Joseph Poon. And that was at the, anyway, they described in that, that basically scaling blocks could not get you to the, the amount of throughput you would need to accommodate the global economy, but um, payment channels could you get you a lot of the way there. So once I realized that Bitcoin could accommodate the global economy, you know, that's a big deal, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and at the same time, there are all these projects popping off. Everyone, like everyone in their mother was like launching a coin (laughs) and I, uh, and I was like, wait a minute, you know, we're just like distracting ourselves with all these, you know, pointless, these like self-serving kind of alternatives. Mm -hmm. And in the process, we're neglecting Bitcoin. And so I thought, well, you know, I should, uh, I should help correct the balance there by like focusing on Bitcoin. And because at that time, the Lightning Network was getting close to being ready for further kind of use and development. Basically, the, you know, the Lightning Labs and other organizations had been building their node implementations. And those node implementations included a, um, an interoperability test suite that was, yeah. people were tracking it on Reddit and other places, showing like how the, the progress that was being made in terms of closer, higher and higher levels of interoperability. And so... I had the sense that it was time to, to focus on the next step, which would be the wallet software. It's like, once you have the node, you need the wallet to interact with it to like do your daily business. And so I went on GitHub and I looked for, um, open source lightning wallet software. And I found a few and one I, uh, ended up contributing to was zap desktop. So this is a project of Jack Mahler's who now runs strike and uh, the, basically the, the reason I chose zap desktop was because it was um, BS, BSD licensed rather than GPL licensed, oh, MIT licensed. Yeah, there you go. And uh, so that means it's a, 
you know, kind of commercially available. You can use it as a commercial uh, project. I remember using this. Nice. Not, not on the desktop, but wasn't there an app too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I used to use this yeah, the app. Mobile and... Uh, before before Zeus, I used to use it. Yeah. yeah, so you can look at my contributions there. Gosh, that's crazy. Yeah, so anyway, I got... I, I just started like, you know, trying to help out and improve the, the code and that kind of thing. And uh, then I did a, a bit of that. And then uh, at some point, uh, Jack had his concussion. That was in 2018, I suppose. And uh, so the, that kind of put a pause on the project. So mm-hmm. I, um, I went looking to do something else and I, th- I decided to try my hand at core development. And so... How is that different than, uh, than lightning development just for well, you know, the plebs at home? Sure. So zap is implemented in JavaScript and it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's an application. And so it's more like, um, model view controller, uh, communication of, uh, you know, like basically buttons that perform actions that invoke the node that result in some operation there. Okay. Um, whereas Bitcoin is a uh, more like system software. It's like it has uh, different components for doing the coin selection and the you know communicating with your peers and and whatnot. So it's much more. Uh, it's I would say it's a more complex software and it's more um, involved. Okay. And it's implemented in C plus plus. Oh, that's a big thing, right? Yeah. So the um, so I think a common thing, I think in all open source development, it's easy to be intimidated by the software, right? To say like, to throw your hands up, like, I don't understand this, or I'm not going to be able mm-hmm. to, to help with this. And I, um, I was lucky in that I had some prior history in, in open source contributions. So like I contributed, uh, I contributed some things to Ruby on Rails. And that was really where I got my kind of, practice in, in terms of like how my, my approach works. And, um, and I developed the kind of confidence in making these contributions. And so mm. in this case, what I do with, um, software that I just don't, that I'm not familiar with, right? Like you're initially you're ignorant of the software and then you have to kind of develop, you have to climb the learning curve mm-hmm. in order to, in order to be productive in it. Mm-hmm. And so that this curve kind of deters a lot of people. So what I do with that instead is I just uh, make like sort of cleanup and refactoring commits. And so I look for opportunities to simplify the code base, to add, you know, additional checks to, um, you know, uh, it's, we can pull up examples of, of uh, what I've done on Bitcoin. Yeah. Let's see it. Let's go here. Going over to your GitHub. Sure. Impact. Um, just Bitcoin Core right here. So if you go to contributors on the right. 915 contributors. And uh, where am I going here now? You got to scroll down to, I'll be down towards the bottom of this page, I think. That's amazing, dude. Wow, look at that. So just click on 150 commits. Wow. Wow. 
So you still work on it to the to this day? Then it looks like your last one was well, six months ago. I mean, so I've I've been much uh, less active in the, recently, and well, it's because you're building Protopia. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I'm, I, you know, I've, I've got other things that are like keeping me busy. Yeah. Um. But yeah, some of my pull requests, which are have been outstanding, have been merged even long after wow, I like to you know, Congrats on that, man. It's uh it's really cool to see. I'm gonna see if I can. Gosh. It's amazing, dude. Thank you for your service, man. All right. Thank you. Um, yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up. I, I was, I was amazed when I saw it and I was just like, and I think I went around the lab that day. I was like, did you know this about, they're like, yeah, man. And I was like, but did you know he's on the list? <laughs> he's on this list. Um, but yeah, it's true. So, I mean, part of the reason I do it or I have done it and uh, maybe I'll get back to it in the future um, is that there's, um, you know, the code base is forever. Like the history is recorded in, in Git. And Interesting. if Bitcoin does what we want it to do, then I'll be proud to be have been associated in this way with it to be able to contribute in the wow. ways I've been able to contribute. And um, that's such a great way to look at it, man. You'll be in the history books. Slaughterhouse.